a biography, which is a New York Times, Washington Post, and Los Angeles Times bestseller. The book was honored as a best book of 2009 by the Washington Post. The Christian Science Monitor, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the History Book Club, and Barnes and & Noble. His Lincoln biography won the coveted Christopher Award in 2010, which salutes books that affirm the highest values of the human spirit. White is also the author of Lincoln's greatest speech, the second inaugural, honored as a New York Times notable book of 2002, and a Washington Post and San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. And he's the author of The Eloquent President, a portrait of Lincoln through his own words, which is a Los Angeles Times bestseller, a selection of the History Book Club, and the Book of the Month Club. He is presently writing a comprehensive biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Dr. White has lectured at the White House and been interviewed on the PBS NewsHour. He is a graduate of UCLA and Princeton Theological Seminary and holds the PhD in Religion and History from Princeton University. He has studied at Lincoln Theological College in England and has been honored with a Doctor of Humane Letters from Whitworth University. Dr. White has taught at UCLA, Princeton Theological Seminary, Whitworth University, Colorado College, Ryder University, and San Francisco Theological Seminary, where he also served as academic dean. And we talked about that job over laughter a few minutes ago. <laughs> he is a fellow at the Huntington Library, visiting professor of history at UCLA, and a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. He lives with his wife, Cynthia, in La Cañada, California, a stone's throw from, from Pasadena. And Dr. White's lecture this morning is entitled, Abraham Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount, the Second Inaugural. Dr. White, it is an honor to have you with us this morning. We look forward to the word you bring to us today. It's a delight to be with you. I've had the privilege of serving, teaching, learning in four theological seminaries. I thank you for coming. I thank you for what you're doing in this very difficult transition time in our church and culture. I commend you. Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. That wasn't the title my publisher wanted. They didn't understand that title. But it's actually the title that was given to Lincoln's second inaugural address by a reporter the next day. Now another reporter said he's crossed the line between church and state. And yet another reporter said it sounds like the tale of an old sermon. But Lincoln adopted and liked the title Lincoln's Sermon on the Mount. For you see in these 701 words Lincoln mentions God 14 times, quotes the Bible four times, and invokes prayer three times. You won't find this in the traditional Lincoln biography. You won't find in the traditional Eisenhower biography that Eisenhower was baptized while he was president of the United States and joined the National Presbyterian Church. That's not what we write about in biographies today. But I hope you will understand this for the ministries that are entrusted to you. 
For my task is, in a sense, to show that along with Lincoln being a politician, a lawyer, president, emancipator, he was also on a faith journey. You and I are on a faith journey, and the people we serve are on faith journeys. And this faith journey is important to understand. Let's refresh our memories. The Civil War had gone on for four years. We used to think for 125 years that it cost 620,000 dead. A demographer five years ago looking at the 1870 census has convinced us that that figure is absolutely wrong. The figure is actually 750,000 dead. In a tiny nation of barely more than 30 million people, more deaths than all of our other wars put together. Lincoln came to speak on a dark, rainy, windy day. Here's the extra credit question. Who was the last president inaugurated for a second term before Abraham Lincoln? Andrew Jackson. And so to be elected for a second term, he arrived, there were 25 to 35,000 people. It looked like Austin on Saturday. I barely made it in from Los Angeles with all the rain. This was a dark, rainy, muddy, windy day. The reporter for the Times of London, looking out on the 35,000 people there, was particularly struck by the people who were gathered at the back. Most of the people on such a day were dressed in dark clothing, but these people at the back were dressed in red and yellow, green, bright clothing. He wondered if they'd ever been to an inauguration before. The crowd looked around and were shocked by what they saw because the soldiers in the audience were marked by Civil War surgery, three-quarters of which was amputation, amputation of legs and arms. And they wrote home about what they'd seen. Anybody here been to an inauguration? Oh, a couple people, good for you. Hi. <laughs> uh, I expected people to be caught up in a mood of celebration. That's what we do, especially if it's our candidate. But when I read their letters and diaries, I found something quite different. For the letters and diaries were filled with a sense of deep anger. People were angry that day. Because if you think about it, every person there had lost a father, husband, son, brother, and they were angry at the South. And they wanted Lincoln to give voice to that anger. That's what we do in times of war. In World War I, we banished the teaching of German in every public school in the United States. In World War II, we banished the Japanese from the western parts of the United States. Surely Lincoln would give voice to their anger. Let's see what he actually does say. Would you take out your handout? Does everybody have one? Okay, good. 701 words. 505 are one syllable. Those of us involved in theological education are concerned with words. 505 or one syllable. Lincoln loved what he called the Saxon Bible. He didn't call it the King James Bible. The Saxon Bible is filled with strong, one-syllable Saxon words. At this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. This is not exactly four score and seven years ago. We're not sure what Lincoln is doing or where he's going. In the first paragraph, I suggest that Lincoln breaks every rule of modern politics or modern leadership. You and I are enduring the longest political campaign in American history. It's not even next year, and we're still into this. 
And all of the candidates on both sides are promising everything they will do for us, the American voter. Lincoln takes exactly the opposite approach. Listen. At the second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address. Eight lines down on the right margin, little that is new could be presented. The next to the last line of the first paragraph, no prediction in regard to it is ventured. What a surprising way to be a leader, to say what one cannot do. In the second paragraph, I suggest we begin to get to the heart of the rhetorical purpose of this address. Lincoln, you see, is asking himself a question that no one else is asking. Not the pastors, not the professors, not the politicians. The question is, how can the South be brought back into the Union without alone bearing the blame and the shame for the Civil War? And Lincoln attempts to answer that question, first of all, by what I call his use of inclusive language. Inclusive language. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. Do you hear what he's doing? He's imputing the best possible motives to the people of the South. Wouldn't our political dialogue be so different if we imputed the best possible motive, not ideas, but motive to those on the other side of the conversation? At the end of the paragraph, Lincoln says, both parties deprecated war. Now, the first time I ever gave this address was at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs before the beginning of the war with Iraq, and my guide was a Marine Corps major who told me he had been wounded one day in Vietnam 38 times. He went on to earn an MDiv degree, a PhD in philosophy, and became a military chaplain. When we left that day, he said, Ron, he said, the next war is coming, and we will be told by our American political leaders, as well as our American military leaders, that we will win this next war quickly. He said, do not believe it. The next war will spin out of our control, and it will go on and on and on, and it's still going on today. And Lincoln had understood that although the direct object of the use of the word war in the second paragraph, which is the main noun, seven times he uses the word war, twice he uses the word pronoun. This is what people are talking about, obviously, in the crowd that day. The word war is not simply the direct object, but it is now achieving a life of its own. Remember, the North believed they would win this war easily in three to four months. They had more than twice as many men in arms. They had a much greater industrial base, but the war went on and on and on. And so Lincoln comes to the final sentence. It's four words, it's four syllables, and the war came. I wondered how did Lincoln say those words. We have photographs, nine of them, by Alexander Gardner of Lincoln delivering the second inaugural address. We don't have any audio of him speaking the second inaugural address. I want you to think for a moment. How do you think he might have said those words now that you've begun to enter into this text 
the idea that this painful war had gone on and on and on. Edward Everett, who spoke for two hours and seven minutes at Gettysburg, how would you like to follow that? might have said it this way, he was the great orator of the day, he was, he'd given over 150 speeches trying to raise money to restore Mount Vernon. I think he might have said it this way, and the war came. But this is interactive. How do you think he might have said that last sentence of the second paragraph? Anyone? Regret. 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 Yeah. Anybody else? More somber, yes. 750,000 dead, is this a time to rejoice? No, it's a time to be mournful, to be regretful. Perhaps he might have said it, and the war came. Lincoln then starts in the third paragraph like an historian or a sociologist, a chronicler, to tell us what is the meaning and purpose of the war. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow, somehow, the cause of the war. In April of 2011, as we began to commemorate four years of the Civil War, the Pew Charitable Trust asked a question of American, American people. And one of the major, it was about the Civil War, but the major question for me was, what was the cause of the Civil War? And the American people couldn't answer. The group that most could not answer the question was 18 to 29 years of age. They were all over the map. They had no idea what was the cause of the Civil War. Only one group, 65 years of age and older, answered slavery. Read the secession documents. Every one of them suggests that slavery is the cause of the Civil War. And yet we have been told all of these things that slavery was not the cause of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln very clearly says here, slavery is the cause of the Civil War. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the enlargement of it. When Lincoln ran for office, he felt bound by the Constitution that he could not deal with slavery where it already existed. He could only stop its spread into the territories and states of the West. He then assumed as commander-in-chief that he could do something about slavery, and therefore he enacted the Emancipation Proclamation. How many of you have seen the movie Lincoln? It's a very unusual movie. There's no sex, violence, or pyrotechnics. It's all about ideas. There's 164 speaking parts. I've seen it six times with various friends. And the whole point of the 13th Amendment is that Lincoln understands we have to outlaw slavery. It cannot be left to a future president. It cannot even be left to the Supreme Court. There must be a constitutional amendment outlawing slavery. And that's the whole fulcrum of that movie. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it had already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with slavery or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each side looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. And now Lincoln makes a tremendous change in this address, I think. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. 
When I started working on Abraham Lincoln rather late in my life, I was told by all my academic friends, don't get too excited. This is what we do in inaugural addresses. We all quote the Bible. We all invoke God. So I said, well, all right, I'll, I'll read the previous 18 inaugural addresses. Only one time in those 18 addresses had the Bible ever been quoted. John Quincy Adams from the Psalms, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And of course, the invocation of God. Yes, that is true in every single inaugural address, but it's always been in the last paragraph, kind of, and we need God's help too. Lincoln makes this front and center. He does something here publicly, which he had been mulling over privately for the previous two and a half years. He's asking himself the question, where is God in the midst of this civil war? So he says, both read the same Bible. Do you hear the inclusive language? One of the fascinating parts of my research was to go to the American Bible Society in New York and to hold in my hand either whole Bibles or quickly they realized marching soldiers couldn't carry whole Bibles with them. So they printed 14 different parts of the Bible that they could carry with them. Often the soldier would write his life verse in the center, in the front flyleaf. Some had blood on them. When they cleared the battlefield at Gettysburg to return things to family members, they found diaries and letters and watches and money. What they chiefly found were Bibles. Both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Semicolon. Now you in this wonderful seminary are involved in words. You're involved in texts. When I speak in churches, I call this American scripture alongside of the Christian scriptures that we expound. We're dropping out of our language. We're abbreviating our language. So semicolons are going. They're gone. They're very important for Abraham Lincoln. I think they might be important for us. And often for Abraham Lincoln, it's a sign that he's going to now change it. So after invoking an affirmation, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, suddenly he says, and each invokes his aid against the other. What he's really saying is, how dare each side invoke God's aid against the other? What's going on here? Do we worship a territorial God? Do we worship a tribal God? Lincoln had become very upset when a group of ministers came to him one day to say, God is on our side. God bless America. And he leapt from his chair and said, wait a second. I want to figure out how I can get to be on God's side. He knew they were coming to Jefferson Davis with exactly the same plea. I look for the antecedents of this address. When you look at, say, Martin Luther King's wonderful I Have a Dream speech, you can find that he said parts of those speeches, that speech earlier and other occasions, and then in a wonderful way brought it together on that memorable day in Washington. I couldn't find it in any previous speeches, but I did find some antecedents. Three months to the day, Lincoln was greeted by two women from the South whose husbands officers were in a Union prison. They knew that Lincoln was a softy when women came to plead their cause with him. So they claimed that their husbands were Christian men. Surely this would get Lincoln's attention. To the consternation of his secretaries, Lincoln often did this. He said to these two women, this is a wonderful conversation. Why don't you come back tomorrow and we'll continue the conversation. And after the second day, he said, come back tomorrow. Let's, let's keep talking about this. And on the third day, he said to these two women, I find it very difficult 
when you tell me that your husbands are Christian men, how can Christian men go against the duly constituted authority of this nation? And then, and I'm sure from memory, he then offered these words. It may seem strange, this is from the book of Genesis, that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. I don't have my Bible with me, but what I really want to say is often we allow the Bible to be back there and then, and what we want to do certainly as ministers of the gospel is for the Bible to be here and now. And Lincoln is saying to these two women, what? Your husbands are involved in slavery, and that's against what I think of as religion. And then he said to these two women, I don't think that's the kind of religion that gets people to heaven. And he asked them to leave. Well, Noah Brooks of the Sacramento Daily Union was sitting out in the hallway. He would have become Lincoln's secretary in the second term. He said, Noah, come on in here. I want to write down what I said to these two women. I may want to use it someday. He did use it someday. There's a semicolon, though. But let us judge not that we be not judged. Matthew 7, verse 5. Lincoln, misunderstood as a person with no religion, misunderstood as a person who didn't formally join a church, misunderstood as, if anything, an Old Testament person, here invokes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For this is the core of what he's saying. Instead of judgment, we're going to offer reconciliation. We're going to offer forgiveness. Where is this found? This is found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. And then this strong indicative, the Almighty has his own purposes. You and I, as we preach sermons, I think the sermon hasn't really changed that much in several centuries. I think what the minister does Sunday by Sunday is, first of all, offer an indicative. This is what God has done in the life teaching death and resurrection of Jesus. And then there will come the imperative where, and therefore we might respond with this, what? By reconciliation, by forgiveness, by generosity. So the indicative of this address sent right in the center part of it, the architectural center is the Almighty has his own purposes. Wow. And then Lincoln changes again. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh, Matthew 25. But his audience would have understood what sadly our audience would not understand, that he is now invoking a Jeremiah. He is now invoking the Puritan preachers of the second and third and fourth generation who told their audiences, you have forgotten the faith of your grandparents. You have forgotten the faith of your parents. You have done, and the, the audience in New England was waiting, what have we done? What have we gone after? So the audience is wondering, well, what is the problem? And Lincoln says, if we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses. Now notice he doesn't say slavery. He says American slavery. If I could go back one step, I, I, I wanted one thing to say and I failed to say it, so if you'll allow me to take a back step, I will. At the end of the second paragraph, where Lincoln says both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war, when I was speaking that day in Colorado Springs, a Princeton University PhD professor in English said, but Dr. White, don't you understand that he actually is blaming the South? It's quite clear that he is. 
Here's a point that I think those of us who wish to be in ministry need to understand. Oh, I wish our politicians understood it, but they don't. It's extremely important to listen to what someone does not say. Does not say. As opposed to something someone does say. So what would have been the effect on the audience if Lincoln would have said, both parties deprecated war, but those tyrants, those rebels, those tyrants, the audience would have erupted in applause. But that's exactly the response Lincoln did not want. And so very calmly, quietly, he says generically, but one of them. Sometimes we have to be careful when we push the send button or when we send something in a provocative way in a sermon which we wish we could walk back from later. And so Lincoln understands this in the way he talks in measured tones in this address. If we should suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God. Okay, let me stop for a moment and say something about Lincoln's faith journey. He grew up in Kentucky and Indiana in what was then known as the Second Great Awakening. His parents were members of a Baptist church. No offense to any Baptists here this morning. It was extremely emotional. And Lincoln really rebelled against this kind of emotion. As a nine-year-old boy, he would stand out in front of the church after Sunday morning and repeat literally word for word the minister's sermon in a very derisive way until his father hit him on the backside and sent him home. And then Lincoln did what many of us have done, or certainly the people in our congregations have done with their children or grandchildren. Lincoln reacted strongly against that Baptist tradition. He became a skeptic. He became a fatalist, kind of a kissing cousin of deism. When he lived in New Salem, he actually wrote a paper criticizing Christianity and criticizing the Bible. He was torn out of his hand and thrown in the fireplace. It's not a smart thing to do for an aspiring politician to criticize Christianity. But Lincoln's on a faith journey, like every one of us. And so after he marries Mary Todd Lincoln, and the first boy is born, Eddie, Eddie dies at three and a half. And they go looking for the Episcopal minister who has married them, but he's not there. And so there's a young Presbyterian minister who's only been in town 11 months, James Smith, and they reach out to James Smith, and Smith comes into their lives and ministers to them in this time of crisis. And this begins a change in Lincoln's life. Mary joins the Presbyterian Church. Lincoln, who is not a member, what we forget is when the church gets involved in a wrangle with a Presbytery, what else is new? The church asks Lincoln if he'll be one of the three lawyers representing the congregation before the Presbytery. Lincoln then comes to Washington. If you've seen the movie Lincoln, you remember that terrible scene when Willie dies. Willie's 11 years old. You don't want to say this about any child, but the son, most like the father, Mary will never recover from Willie's death. Lincoln is overcome with grief, but he asks Phineas Densmore Gurley to preach the funeral sermon. Greeley is minister of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. I argue that he's the missing person in the Lincoln story. And I love to speak to seminaries because I'm so worried that ministers today, some of whom drop out of the ministry, do so because ministry today doesn't seem to have the kind of public cachet that it had 50 or 100 years ago. And I want to say to people, ministers are so important. People may never know your name. They may know the names of people in your congregations. Curly is the person behind Lincoln. 
And Lincoln asked Gurley for that sermon. At the end of the sermon, Gurley leans forward to a grieving Abraham Lincoln. Mary can't even attend the service. And he says, I ask you to trust in biblical providence. Biblical providence. So watch the language of the second inaugural. This is not fatalism. This is not deism. This is providence. What do we as Christians believe that providence is? It's the belief in a loving God with personality who enters into history. So Lincoln says, which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, notice the activity of God, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? I have been criticized by those who say, when Lincoln says, those which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him, and they say, aha, this is not Lincoln talking, he's talking about other people. But for goodness sakes, Lincoln wrote his autobiography in the third person. This is the way he spoke. But for years and years, maybe you're smarter than I am, I didn't understand where does this phrase divine attributes come from? Divine attributes, divine attributes. Then I asked someone much smarter than I am, Don McKim, who teaches reform and studies reform theology. He said, Ron, that's the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's right there in Westminster. This is exactly what Lincoln would have been hearing from Phineas Densmore Gurley at New York Avenue. This is very sophisticated theological language, friends. This is not tipping his hat to religion. This is sophisticated language. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray. Oh, how Lincoln loved alliteration. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. You're sitting there on a cold, windy day and you've got to say 250 years. He's saying right back to the beginning of this nation. Until every drop of blood drawn with a lash, slavery shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, 750,000 dead. As was said 3,000 years ago, and now he will quote Psalm 19. So still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now the reporter for the Times of London perked up his ears. Now he began to notice a stirring in that group of people who were at the back of the audience. They began to say something and he struggled with his craning of his ear to hear something. It was the African Americans. They had never been to an inauguration before but they were there for Lincoln and what they said was bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. The chant carried forward from the back to the front of the audience. Frederick Douglass was in the audience that day. He had been terribly disappointed in Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural in which Lincoln said he would preserve the fugitive slave law, which meant that people could come to the north from the south and take a slave and go back to the south. But he had met Lincoln twice. The first time he turned in his card, knowing that you often waited days to get in to see the President of the United States. In five minutes the door opened and Abraham Lincoln stood up. He stood up to greet Frederick Douglass. Douglass told a gathering that next Sunday in Philadelphia, I know when I'm treated with respect, I may not agree with everything with Abraham Lincoln, but I am treated with respect 
as a man by this person. Davis, Frederick Douglass wrote in his diary that evening, this was not a state paper. It sounded like a sermon. Well, it really was a state paper, but let me close with this. In our preaching, we do, I think, most of us offer in some form what I call the indicative, what God has done. I don't know how it works in your congregation, depending on your particular style of minister, but often the minister at the end will then say, and therefore, my friends, in the coming week, I suggest that you live out what? With reconciliation or forgiveness or generosity, whatever would be the response to the indicative. So I believe that the final paragraph is Lincoln's imperative. It's his ethical imperative. It really almost deserves to have an unvoiced therefore before it. I'm amazed by this. Lincoln lived in a nation deeply divided. Friends, we live in a nation deeply divided. He dared to ask this nation to forgive each other, to enter into reconciliation. I am so appalled by much of the political debate that's going on. But those of us who bear the name of Christ, is it possible that the leaven that we can be in the congregations where we are can offer something of forgiveness, reconciliation, graciousness? We don't have to agree with each other's ideas, but we can treat each other with respect. So at the end of the day, the second inaugural is not saying, well, Lincoln can help us solve climate change. No, he can't. <laughs> He's not going to advise us on what to do in Syria or Ukraine. But as you think about this, he's offering us a spirit, an inclusive spirit of respect, a humility. The Almighty has his own purposes and a way of relating to each other. So may we close this morning by saying the final paragraph together. It needs to be understood as written in 1865, but in a strange, remarkable way, I think it still speaks to 2015. Let's say it together. One eight, I'm on the wrong page. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations.